Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Library, and our guest is independent scholar Robin Harrigan. Robin is also District Manager of Christian Science Committees on Publication for United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. Robin is here with us for part two of Among the First to Stand, Christian Science and Women in Parliament. Hello, Robin. Hello, Jonathan. Well, it's great to have you with us, and we're, we're so excited to explore this subject a bit further. In the first part of this episode, Robin, we spoke with Dr. Mari Takianagi, Senior Archivist at the Parliamentary Archives in London, England. Mari provided an overview of what it meant to be among those women who broke the political glass ceiling in Great Britain as the first female members of parliament. In particular, she focused on the work of three of those political pioneers, Nancy Astor, Margaret Winteringham, and Thelma Caslett Keir. Robin, you've been researching and writing on these three figures in relation to their moral and spiritual convictions as Christian scientists. I had the pleasure of hearing your paper, The Impact of Christian Science on Political Women in the Early 20th Century in the United Kingdom, where you shared some of your findings. Robin, I'd love to begin by asking you, what drew you to study these women and their relationship to Christian science? Well, thank you, Jonathan. And I'm, I'm really glad you had that uh, episode with Dr. Takanyagi, because the exhibition that she's curated at the House of Commons Celebrating 100 Years of Votes for Women is just excellent. Oh, great. But as, as for me and my interest in these women, well, I am a Christian scientist, and uh, also I've been a feminist all my life, so I'm interested in, in women. And also, as I was growing up, I heard rumors about Nancy Viscountess Astor, the first woman MP in the House of Commons, and often the rumors were, well, they were mixed, and um, one didn't get a sort of glowing impression of, of her at all. In fact, rather a critical view of her. The other thing, as I sort of increased my, my scholarship, I started researching into the development of Christian science in the UK, and that obviously led me to the individuals who were involved in the early Christian science movement. So I started to research Nancy Astor. Nancy Astor was elected in a by-election where she took over from her husband who had gone to the House of Lords and she was elected in a fair and square election and took up her, her position in 1919. And then she was there for two years on her own. And then the next woman to be elected was Margaret Wintringham who also happened to be a Christian scientist. So the two first women in the House of Commons were Christian scientists. And then in 1931, Thelma Kazalik was elected as the 24th woman in the House of Commons, and she also happened to be a Christian scientist. So that makes, uh, it, you know, comparatively an extraordinary number of Christian scientists among the first few women who were elected in the House of Commons. In focusing on these three women, this does not take away at all from the other 
amazing, wonderful women who were also elected to parliament during that time, all mm -hmm. of whom had uh, excellent qualities and some of whom were religious in their own right. But obviously my focus is on the Christian scientists. So Robin, as you've gone about researching these figures and exploring Christian science in British culture in the early 20th century, did any uh, surprises come to your attention? Were there things that you um, had not expected to find that you uncovered? The initial thing surprised me, that Christian science would have had such a high profile at that time. Mm. Um, when you look at the figures, the fact that so many of those early women, and there were so few women who were elected to parliament in those first few years, when the franchise was extended in 1929, there were still only 14 women elected to a house of what was what, approximately 600 members in the house. So it was a hard battle, and so many of them were Christians. So, so that was that was the first thing. The second thing that surprised me is that these women were incredibly courageous. Mm. Uh, when you actually look at the evidence of what they did, they were fought at every level on the the reforms they wanted to make. For example, Margaret Wintringham was a was a quiet woman who came from a small area in Lincolnshire. She had been very active locally in local politics, but She'd hardly been out of uh, the area. Well, actually, she came from Yorkshire and then married somebody in Lincolnshire. But she'd not been in, in the city at all. And she just went straight in and started to take up causes. She had a soft voice. She was not pushy in any way. But she got things done. One of her policies that she promoted and brought to fruition was the Equal Guardian Act, meaning that both men and women could be equal guardians of children in cases of divorce. This would have been very much in keeping with the idea of, uh, in Christian science, of a father-mother guard and the equality of the sexes. And I think that the Guardianship of Children Act was was a great achievement and is well recognized as being a great achievement. It was a cause that was close to women's heart for for many years before they got the vote. It was a very emotional thing and she she did it. She's well recognized for doing it. Um, and, and the same would have applied with Thelma Kazalikia, who fought hard for female teachers to get uh, equal pay in the Education Act of 1944. Robin, earlier you spoke about how when growing up you'd heard these stories about Nancy Astor and that, that oftentimes it was something of a negative portrayal that was coming across to you. As you learned more about her, how did you come to see her through your research and, and how did that correspond with those early impressions that you had of her? One of the things was uh, Nancy Astor had an acerbic wit. Mm. Um, and often there were lots of anecdotes of these little stories, and they sounded a bit sharp, mm -hmm. a, a, a bit critical. But more important than that was the very severe sort of black mark against uh, the Astors, which was their connection with the, the Cliveden set. Now, the Cliveden set 
became a symbol of appeasement in the um, years leading up to the war. Appeasement became a, a, a dirty word during the war because fighting Hitler was such a, a commitment and um, anyone who had any sympathy for Hitler was totally condemned. And so I always wanted to find out about what this was about because it seemed unlikely that um, Christian scientists would support the very atrocious Third Reich. And what I discovered was that the Clifton set was a myth that was made up by certain journalists. The first person to use the word was Claude Cockburn, who was the writer of a weekly paper called The Week. He had worked for The Times. And he made up this extraordinary myth about this sort of secret cabal that was working to influence government policy, government foreign policy, in particular the whole issue of appeasement. And it was centered around uh, Cliveden, the country home of Lord and Lady Astor, where it was said these people would meet. And he backed it up with what he said was evidence about a particular meeting that took place in 1937. And both Nancy's recent biographers, Christopher Sykes and Adrian Fort, completely debunk this, uh, this myth that had been perpetrated by journalists. But it caught the imagination of the time. And it took off, and it also took off worldwide. You know, they were reporting about it in America and mm. all over the world. And it was a hard thing to to overcome, even though it was untrue. It was untrue. It's interesting that you bring up the fact that the story also circulated in the United States. And one thing that, that comes to our attention here in, in Boston is Nancy Astor's connection with the United States. She was born and bred in, in the United States, and uh, she represented the area of Plymouth Sutton, was it, in, um, in England? The, yes. Um, and our famous historical iconic site here in Massachusetts is Plymouth Rock, which is, I, I believe, named after the town where the pilgrims launched from. Uh, in England, which Nancy Astor subsequently represented. So in terms of that connection between the United States and England, what is often thought of as a special relationship, in what ways did Nancy Astor embody that special relationship between uh, the two nations? And, and in what ways perhaps then did Christian science as an American-born religion also contribute to that sense of England and the United States and, and their shared values? Well, in terms of Nancy Astor, uh, there was, I mean, sort of physically within her being, a special relationship between uh, America and the UK. She had a deep insight into it. She was born in Virginia, and she often went home to, to visit her family there. And she also ex traveled extensively in the United States. She was constantly asked by the press in the United States to give interviews. So she had a lot to say about the two countries, some of which 
the Christian Science Monitor reported on. In mm-hmm. fact, there's there's several interviews or, or comments about what Nancy Astor said in the Christian Science Monitor at the time, as well as in many other papers. Nancy never lost her American twang, <laughs> and she also fought fought very hard for the United States to to join the war in mm. Britain. She there's a lot of correspondence about that. She even wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt about bringing bringing the uh, America into the war. She was very close to America, but she balanced it mm-hmm. with her time in the UK. Her first speech in the House of Commons showed how she intertwined the two, how she thought of the two. She said, I know it's very difficult for some honourable members to receive the First Lady MP into the House. <laughs> Not all, she said. It's almost as difficult for some of them as it was for the lady MP herself to come in. <laughs> honourable members, <laughs> honourable members, however, should not be frightened of what Plymouth sends out into the world. Mm-hmm. After all, I suppose when Drake and Raleigh wanted to set out their venturesome careers, some cautious person said, don't do it. It's never been tried before. You should stay at home, my sons, cruising around in home waters. I have no doubt the same thing occurred when the Pilgrim Fathers set out. I have no doubt that there were cautious Christian brethren who did not understand their going into the wide seas to worship God in their own way. But on the whole, the world is all the better for those venturesome, courageous West Country people. Mm. And I would like to say that I am quite certain that the women of the whole world will not forget that it was the fighting men of Devon who dared to send the first woman to represent women in the Mother of Parliaments. Mm. That's that's lovely. Quite a strong, quite yeah. a strong speech, but shows a lovely, a lovely sort of interrelationship between the two countries. Well, I think, Robin, my, my last question that I'd like to ask is, do you think spiritual practice and being involved in political work, that those are two activities that harmonized in the lives of these three figures, or were there tensions between being political and being religious for them? I think there were tensions. I do. I think the ideals of Christianity are difficult to put in practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know you can see the the obvious conflict was that the ideal of peace within Christianity certainly conflicted with the period be, before the war and drew a lot of criticism. Um, both Astor and Keslick here called for appeasement before they knew the full horror of Hitler's Third Reich, because they thought that striving for peace was infinitely better than than war. And of course, this is very much in line with deeply biblical teachings such as Blessed Are the Peacemakers and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, going the extra mile for peace. You know, these kind of things came from their deep religious faith. But then on the other hand, the ideal of of God's creation, of the kingdom of God on earth, can act as, uh, and did certainly act as a motivator and 
a way to keep up courage and hope in times of adversity because that goal was always there and everything that they knew about from their faith led them to believe that the world could be made a better place. I mean, Christian science uh, was something that Nancy Astor saw was, was, was universal. Uh, she didn't particularly dwell on the fact that it came from America. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote a talk for the for the BBC on religion. She'd been asked to write a talk by the BBC on religion, and I found this talk. I don't know if she actually gave it, but I found it in the Astor Papers in Reading University Library. And she she wrote about Christian Science giving her a true sense of values. Mm. Um, and she said it has made me comparatively indifferent to what the world calls its opinion. Mm. and yet on not indifferent to the world's problems. And she goes on to say that the meaning of Christian science was epitomized by a quotation from Science and Health, which, in fact, you read out to Dr. Right, yeah. Takanyagi yeah. in the previous podcast. You know, and it starts, one infinite God, good, unifies men and nations, and so on. So she... Uh, Thelma Kaslick here, Margaret Wintringham, and many others would have had the goal before them. And it encouraged them to find the way towards it through the acts of parliaments, the following of certain causes, the compromises that that drew them towards a better world. Mm. Well, that's lovely. Um, I'm so glad that you found that speech of Lady Astor. Robin, and I'm so glad we were able to spend this time with you to explore further into uh, the political lives and causes of these three women, uh, Nancy Astor, Margaret Wintringham, and Thelma Kazlitt-Keir, and the role that Christian science would have played um, as an inspiration and as a support in their careers and in uh, in their lives overall. So thanks so much, Robin. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for giving me the opportunity. Well, we are so happy that you you took advantage of it. Thank you for listening to part two of Among the First to Stand, Christian Science and Woman in Parliament. Our guest was Robin Harrigan, whose paper, The Impact of Christian Science on Political Women in the Early 20th Century in the UK, was presented at the 2015 Colloquium on Evolutions of Christian Science and Scholarly Perspective, which was held in Antwerp, Belgium. If you haven't done so already, we encourage you to listen to part one with Dr. Mari Takianagi, Senior Archivist at the Parliamentary Archives. In this episode, you can learn more about the political achievements of these early women parliamentarians and how Nancy, Viscountess Astor, emerged as a leading voice in the House of Commons for women's rights. Our next episode explores the topic of gender, spirituality, and the architecture of the Mother Church. Our guest is religious studies scholar, Dr. Jean Kildee of the University of Minnesota. We'll be discussing how issues around religious leadership and gender influence the contrasting styles of the two edifices of the Mother Church at the Christian Science Plaza in Boston. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. Mm-hmm.
This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.